Hi there, and welcome to the podcast episode of the television show Stargate SG-1. For the channel, let's review with Layla and you. For additional content on the other review episodes published by this account on a variety of subjects, come visit us in the RSS community where you can find us under the name Let's Review with Layla and You. You can also find us on Instagram under the same name. Here you can find more additional in-depth content, including with every episode and upload of promotional posts accompanying every podcast episode, as well as provide us a place vacation and where we can share and exchange ideas, thoughts, and whatever else you like to share concerning this whole adventure that we're setting out on together. So come meet up with me, myself, and I, and I would love to hear what y'all think. Hope to see you there. back for the review of another Stargate SG-1 episode. Today we're reviewing the eighth episode of the first season called The Knox. It was written by Hart Hansen, directed by Charles Correll, and the original air date was September 12th, 1997. As for always, the episode starts off with an MGM lion roaring. At the start of the episode, we see a team getting ready to embark on a trip through the gate. No, it is not our beloved SG-1 team. Today, it seems Stargate SG-1 is dressed up to the nines to receive a visitor, the Secretary of Defense. Boy, did that dude bring his toot. He tells them that apparently the administration is not satisfied with the current progress of the program because they expected more superior technologies to be brought back through the gate by now. To drive home his point, he makes several comparisons that really aren't fitting at all, in my opinion. And it surprises me that no one points this out to him. For instance, he says even Marco Polo brought back more than just spices. And I looked a little into what Marco Polo did, because despite taking history in high school, I wasn't that aware of what Marco Polo was known for, apart from that he was an European dude that traveled the world and most likely credited for all sorts of shit. I mean, they all blend together at a certain point. What I mainly know and use Marco Polo 4 is when me and my friend get separated in a store and this way we can easily find each other. Works like a charm. Every time. So it does kind of now make me wonder why his name is used for that particular goal. Because we did not invent that game. So if anyone knows the story behind that one, please do tell. The dude apparently wrote a book that inspired many an explorer, though I could appreciate the irony that he wrote that infamous book while he was imprisoned for three years for attacking an Italian city. Incidentally, the city that was the birthplace of Christopher Columbus, the explorer that he apparently inspired with his book. I guess it really is a small world after all. Anywho, also the comparison, the Apollo mission, I'm surprised no one responded to that because my immediate response was, do you know how much work was put into putting that man on the moon? How many trial and errors? How many missions? How many explosions? How many failed launches there were before they finally put a man on the moon? But no matter, what it just really boils down to and O'Neill beautifully points out is by saying whether it's on Earth or out there, advanced societies don't like sharing their superior technology with lesser advanced societies for very good reason because well let's just say this is a recurring theme on this show and they do it beautifully I might add which yeah as a secretary of defense he should know that so it annoyed me that his response then was so we're wasting our time he seems a little too short-sighted to be secretary of defense but then again you know politicians sometimes they find a way to get elected and then when they're in office you really wonder how did you ever get to be an elected official because Damn, you clearly don't seem to know shit about anything. I'm just very saddened that no one seems to call out his short-sightedness. Truly a shame, in my opinion. Well, of course, his snooty-booty attitude is what leads our team to make the perfect segue later on, but we'll get to that in a minute. 
the secretary tries to stress his point by saying if a go old ship would arrive right now, we'd have nothing to defend ourselves. And okay, granted that is true, but I mean, you haven't been at it for more than what, nine months? And as Carter so helpfully points out, they apparently have already visited 19 worlds in nine, give or take, a month or two. That is quite the tally, if you ask me. Especially considering that prior to this, we were pretty much convinced that we were alone in the entire universe because we're cocky that way. Plus, and that's of course what this whole episode is about, it's not just about visiting planets and taking home technology. But now we're getting ahead of ourselves. Stay tuned for the after school special message that was the theme of this episode. With all the contention flying about and a clearly unhappy administration, out of left field, here comes Tilt, asking the secretary, what technologies do you seek? Straight to the point, just the way I like it. He seizes this opportunity to share that there are still technologies that the go old covet. For instance, there appears to be a creature living on a planet that has the power of invisibility. So that's our next mission, we're off to find this invisible creature. Oh, it does kind of make you stop and wonder why it's only now that he offers up this information because any leg up on the goal old would have been nice to have from day one but okay let's imagine that we were still building rapport and trust and what better way to shut up a politician than by dangling a shiny new carrot so thank you very much for that little nugget mr tilk they arrive on the planet, Tilk describes the flying creature as being able to hover, making Daniel suggest like a hummingbird. Apparently Tilk knows what a hummingbird is. Then he felt the need to add with teeth and on that just draw you a picture of nightmarish proportions. Just they decide to set up camp before doing anything else. They turn back towards the gate where Fred is with all their gear. Where they discover not only has Fred disappeared, so has the gate. Now that's a neat trick. And um, Houston, problem. As a panicky little Daniel infers if we happen to have a certain gadget that could locate the gate in case it ever, I don't know, got lost. We learned from O'Neill, apparently they do. However, I do not recall ever seeing one, not even a reference towards such a device. But that could just be me. If anyone knows different, please do share. O'Neill decides to split them up to go in search of the gate and Fred with all their gear, including that delightfully nifty little gadget that I've never heard or seen before, which is, according to O'Neill, located with the missing Fred. Naturally. I'll make it too easy now. Daniel is coupled with O'Neill and Carter is coupled with Tilk. While on their nature walk, Daniel bats the creature, see a blob hovering? O'Neill sets up to take aim, Daniel fully pointing out. I hope it becomes visible once we trank it, otherwise we'll never be able to find it and you know, you and me both bubba. And just as he's about to take the shot, suddenly there is a staff weapon blasts flying through the air. Apparently the Go'old are here as well. As we soon discover, not just any Go'old, uh-uh, it is Apophis himself with some of his serpent guards. The team quickly regroups. Understandably, Daniel now wants to scrap the mission and go after Apophis, because he is the only one who knows where Sharae and Skara are. Carter reminds him they are currently not prepared for an attack, especially seeing that half their ordnance are now just tranquilizer guns. Daniel passionately suggests that they can use the tranquilizer guns to knock Apophis out, carry his ass back to Earth, toss him in a cell, and pretty much squeeze him till he talks. Though I can definitely appreciate the sentiment, I have nose. And so does O'Neill. Apparently needs to remind Daniel that right now they don't even know where the gate is. Though, Tilk helpfully jumps 
jumps in and says they go all to a half the homing device they spoke of earlier. Solves that problem, I guess. O'Neill now seems to resign to the fact and ask Tilk if he thinks it can be done. What I like here is that O'Neill takes the time to ask Tilk, are you sure you're okay with this? This character used to be a god to you. And I love how Christopher Judge like pulls himself up even more if possible, yes. Guess this determined look on his face as he says, I am okay. Because yeah, just imagine someone that you were raised and believed to be your god, but now to confront him head on fires some serious cojones. I mean, that would explain his oh-so-white stance we see later in the episode. Sorry, nope, inappropriate. That is an image I did not need. I'm very sorry. That is an image that no one needed. I guess this is what you get when you start recording after midnight. Apologies, truly. <laughs> In the next scene, we see Apophis with his guards come across a narrow passage. And this is the first time that I noticed this, but here we see that all of his serpent guards have a gold emblem on their forehead, just like Tilk. And it seems that this was still before they figured out a certain hierarchy in that, because later they make it that the gold emblems are reserved for the first primes of the gold. And other Jaffa just wear a black sticker. <laughs> I can only assume that that's the reason why they changed that at a certain point, because it was just a lot easier to plunk a black sticker on someone's forehead than the gold emblem, which they had to do every single episode for every shot with Tilk in it. Respect for the crew, respect for Christopher Judge for having to sit through that every single day. Not to mention the having to shave your head, because the dude wasn't bald. As suspected, this is where SG-1 tries to trap Apophis. Unfortunately, everything does not exactly go according to plan. Despite all the bullets flying, Apophis doesn't really seem to be all that concerned, and we quickly learn why. Apparently, the dude has a personal shield, which unfortunately stops anything and everything that the team throws at him. Unlike the staff weapon that one of his serpent guards throws him. Interestingly enough, that one does pass through the shield. Before we know it, the entire SG-1 team is gunned down, leaving only Tilk remaining. Before we get back to the awesomeness of that happening right now, I got to say, watching this again, I am just baffled at how easily Carter seems to completely forget her training after she sees O'Neill get shot because she steps out from behind cover, allowing Apophis to now kill her as well, which then seems to upset Daniel to the point that he now too gets up to what, go to Carter, and then now also Daniel gets shot and killed. And I understand it's probably to show that the team really cares for each other and that's why this sequence happened as it did but for me it would have technically made more sense if they just got overpowered and that's why they died that's just probably nitpicking me again i do wonder if other people share the sentiment thankfully we know that as this is just the first season of many this is not the end of our beloved sg1 and this was all probably just for the dramatics of it all but still i'm a little annoyed by how unlikely and careless this is for people who were supposedly trained for situations such as these either way Moving on. As Tilk's continuing to fire his staff weapon blast at Apophis, the force shield stops all of his shots. Realizing they failed, Tilk lowers his staff weapon and looks Apophis dead in the eye as he seemingly accepts his fate, which allows Tilk to now stand firm as he says the soon-to-be infamous phrase, Teleshakamel, or I die free, which he so very helpfully translates himself, as Apophis prepares to take aim at Tilk, who suddenly has disappeared. It wasn't until rewatching it this time around that I fully acknowledged and realized that we have Tilk to thank for ever even meeting the Nox. I never thought of it that way, but probably because he stood his ground, faced his god head on, accepting his fate. That is probably what earned the Nox's respect and helped them decide to step in. Something that they, for thousands of years prior, never felt compelled to do. 
because next we see Daniel wake up all healed, though he still has a giant hole left in his clothes where he got shot. Then he goes to find Carter, who also looks completely healed, but still has a large hole in her clothing, which he just apparently cannot resist poking at. And though I like that they make Carter say something about him poking at her. The what are you looking at doesn't seem all that fitting. I would have liked it a little better, I think, if she'd said, what are you poking at? But maybe they weren't allowed to say the word poking. I don't know. Too sexualized, but still just looking at that where he was poking her. I'm sorry, it just had to be said. They now find Jack as well, who's also healed up, and now Carter goes poking at his hole. They wonder what happened to Tilk and discover that their guns are gone. As young men and women enter the hut, Daniel, as always, introduces himself and the others. They talk to them, but they clearly don't seem to understand them. The woman beckons them to come outside, where they are invited to eat with the whole family. O'Neill tells Daniel to ask him to give them back their weapons, just as the little boy walks up to O'Neill. When O'Neill tries to explain to him that they would like their weapons back because they're dangerous, which kind of gives you a flashback to O'Neill and Scar in the movie, you see the boy run off because there is Tilk! O'Neill tries to get an update from Tilk about all that's been happening. The boy identifies himself now to Carter as Nefreyu. I love that name. She gives her name and all lovey-dovey the boy says her name, making O'Neill say to Carter, No, you can't keep him. I love that moment. Pretty soon after, we discovered that they learned our speech simply by observing for like, what, an hour or two? Damn, now that is a steep learning curve. The team tries to explain to them why they attacked Apophis. They say that they wanted to capture him because he is bad. And here, come on, Daniel O'Neill, really? You couldn't find a better descriptor other than he is bad? What I do like here is that O'Neill does mention that the force field thing was a bit of new information, and Tilk jumps to his own defense, saying, I have not seen such a device. I do like it that even though they feel the need to mention it, and yeah, it needed to be mentioned, and I understand that Tilk gets defensive, I really like it that even though it pretty much sank their entire attempt and resulted in their deaths had it not been for the Nox. I do like it that O'Neill doesn't get mad, doesn't start yelling for Tilk when he says he, that he didn't know that such a thing existed. I like the way that they handled this. Literally shows an emotional maturity not a lot of people who could have died or in this case actually died oftentimes possess. Probably testing the water, Daniel floats the idea of maybe sharing technology and knowledge. But the answer is a very resolute no. The Nox's ways remain mysterious, but they repeatedly keep stating that they would really like it if the team would leave. In the next few minutes, in rapid succession, we learn a lot of things. We learn that the family consists of the supposed leader, Enteus, the woman, Laia, the elder man called Ofer, and the boy named Nefreyu. We learn that, and this remains rather underrated, they communicate through telepathy. In addition, the Nox disclosed that the mosquito from hell bug-like hummingbird with teeth thing is called a Fenry. And the kicker is, it's not the Fenry with the invisibility power, it's the Nox. Ofer turns out to be a whopping 432 years old. Daniel seemingly trying to keep his cool simply responds with, you look good. One always gives me a chuckle. The team offers repeatedly to help the Nox to protect them, but nope, the Nox really just keep stating, we want you to leave. When Tilk also respectfully asks if he wishes to leave, should we not depart now? It is only now that Laia, the woman, reveals that in addition to the SG-1 team members who died, they also rescued one of Apophis' serpent guards. Now he is yet to awake. No matter how hard every single SG-1 member tries to impress upon the Nox, the danger that they are in now that they have also saved Shackle, as the serpent guard is so delightfully named, <laughs> setting the stage for such a beautiful punny. For whatever reason, they fail 
able to utilize. So therefore now I'm gonna. You are welcome. At a certain point, Tilk binds Shackle's hands, and Laia remarks on it, must he be bound so tightly? And thus setting the stage for a beautiful opening to refer to his predicament, the Shackle being shackled. But alas, no. I mean, it had to be said, people. I hope y'all agree. With another SG team huddle, it shines a light on why the team is so reluctant to leave. Quite understandably, they feel responsible, saying that if they hadn't gone after Apophis, Apophis never would have learned of the Nox. Ah, oh, accountability, how I love thee. Also, they try to decide what to do with Shackle, seeing that they clearly can't leave him behind with the Nox. Shockingly, it's Daniel that says, we can't kill him. In such a lamenting manner, it makes the rest of the team turn to him with shock, as in, I'm sorry, Mr. Pacifist, you seem to be genuinely disappointed that that is not considered an option. This does seem to snap Daniel out of it, saying, I wasn't considering it, just stating a fact, but yeah, mm -hmm. you keep telling yourself that, sweetie, because your face, your tone is dripping with disappointment. Pacifist with an asterisk, I guess? Truly, the acting in this scene, but specifically this scene, again, so much happens in just the, the tone, the mannerisms, the looks between them. A true sign of great actors. Well, none actually seem to believe that they have any chance in hell to convert Shackle. I do like it that they try. But as suspected, Shackle's very close-minded, even saying that the ghouls aren't gods, these people are those of the Tauri. He's clearly not open to any of it. Tilk very confidently states, the time of Apophis will end, and on that day, I will return to our world and offer freedom to all Jaffa. And I love that he has just enough sassiness, even though he's so stoic, to say, a shame you won't be alive to see it, because when you fail to kill me, it will be your head. And just the confidence of it all in this scene, I love it. Plus, of course, knowing where this is all gonna lead and end. Oh, feelings! It seems that the special forces training is finally kicking in for O'Neill and Carter, and even Daniel is helping out, as they are now making their own bows and arrows out of the wood that they find in the forest. Though Daniel is helping out, he doesn't seem to have a lot of faith in the plan, and I do like that he states, somehow I don't think we'd made good knocks, as in he fully recognizes that they are going against their wishes, and also they are again trying to take the fight to Apophis instead of just, I don't know, leave, as the knocks have repeatedly asked them to. When O'Neill and Carter are preparing for another go at Apophis, Daniel still tries to get to know the Nox better, try to build relations. I love that there's another fan question that could pop up in lieu of this episode that they address now as Daniel tells Ofer, do you know that if you bury the gate, that'll stop them from coming? Making Ofer point out, yes, but if we buried the gate, they know someone buried it. And that explains why, even though the Go'uld have been coming to this planet for thousands of years, the Nox have never opted to bury the gate. Cleverly done. I love that little moment now where they are making these weapons in full view of the Nox. And the Pharaoh asks them, is that a weapon? Making O'Neill say, Yes, and you can have it. They could have made these interactions quite contentious, especially seeing that they have such opposing views on how to handle this situation. But I love the fact that they stay so very cordial, kind, and respectful. There's even room for some funny banter, although that's mostly from our side. The Nox haven't yet seemed to have developed a sense of humor. The only moment where Enteus actually gets a little annoyed with our ways is when O'Neill tries to kill a Fenry to supposedly save Nefreyu. Anteus fears, and we quickly learn, 
Rightfully so. By having Nefreyu observe their ways, they are influencing him in a way that's bad. Or that could be bad and, well, is it bad? Well, the saying is curiosity killed the cat, but, you know, it is their way. And clearly what Nefreyu is doing. Silk points out that when they release Shackle back to Apophis and he learns that it's the Nox that possess the invisibility power, Apophis will either try to possess them or destroy them from space. Because what he cannot possess, he destroys. Kinda sounds like a toddler, don't it? If I can't have it, no one can. Seeing that converting Shackle was pointless, and the Nox now won't release him to the team without his explicit consent, which, yeah, he ain't never gonna give, the entire argument becomes moot, as when Shackle escapes, on his way out, he stabs both Tilk and Laia. As they quickly tried to heal Laia, the team and Shackle soon discovered that during the healing ritual, the Nox become visible, and Tilk is quick to point out that that is a weakness that the Go'uld can and will exploit. As Tilk and O'Neill report to Anteus that Shackle has found Apophis and told them of their powers, they discover that Nefreyu is missing. As O'Neill tries to explain to Anteus what happened, I told him to go home. Anteus so lovingly responds with, I told the same to you. The very young do not always do as they're told. I love that quote. Before they can get to him, Nefreyu gets killed. Which the team quickly recognizes is exactly the trap that they feared the Go'uld would set. As the Nox are about to start their healing ritual, Team asks for their weapons back, so they can protect them. Tilk points out once they start, they are exposed. But nope, the Nox still refuse their help. Tensions now finally come to a boil, as the Nox still refuse the team's help. O'Neill gets very angry and says, Fine, we're not gonna sit around and watch the slaughter. And Teos bids them farewell. As they walk away, suddenly O'Neill says, Do you think they bought it? So apparently this was a whole act that they were putting up for the Nox. But hadn't we established that the Nox have telepathic powers? Don't they know that you were faking? O'Neill discovers that he still has one tranquilizer dart that the Nox apparently missed in their pat down. What's going to make the difference this time around, or so they hope, is that tranquilizer dart tied to an arrow is presumably a lot slower than being shot from a tranquilizer gun. And hopefully when something passes through his force shield that is slower than a staff weapon blast or a bullet, it will make contact and hopefully they now are able to stun Apophis. Fingers crossed, because I don't know if the Nox will try to heal you twice, if you fuck this one up too. The team again engages Apophis and his serpent guards. Just as O'Neill is about to take the shot, the Nox now make Apophis disappear. Well, shit. Despite some clear differences in opinion, I like how they ended this episode. Teus escorts them to the gate, explaining that they sent Apophis through, and also the team's weapon, something that that was sent to Earth. Although you kind of have to wonder how without the Iris Code, but if they truly have telepathic powers, supposedly they knew the Iris Code. But still, it's kind of weird then that Stargate Command didn't contact them to say, why did you send all your stuff back, but why aren't you coming back? But for the sake of argument, let's just ignore that little tidbit for now. He is soon joined by Nefreyu, who is all healed up and come to say goodbye. O'Neill still clearly is not satisfied with how this is going and states that the Go'uld will come back with ships, with an army, even if they now bury the gate. Though Entei still doesn't seem 
worried in the least, he does appear to appreciate the concern, which now allows us to see why the Nox aren't worried at all. Because Anteus now shows them a fucking floating city, saying, fear not, maybe one day you will learn that your way is not the only way. Well, damn! No doubt anticipating this reaction in the viewer, they again make one of the characters say the thing we're all thinking. O'Neill states, why didn't they tell us this before? Making Daniel now realize that in their way, they did. And they did, and that's the beauty of this episode. They continuously told the team to leave. But the team felt responsible for exposing them to Apophis and were very fearful because they believed that the Nox were incapable of defending themselves against the gold. Unfortunately now, the consequences of all of this happening will be that the Nox will bury the gate, and thus making it impossible for Earth to ever contact the Nox again making Daniel say, we should have listened. Which allows O'Neill now to quote Antaeus saying, the very young do not always do as they're told. And that is just the after school special ending that we needed, basically. That's what I love about this episode. In wrapping up this episode, that quote, the very young do not always do as they're told, I love. Because it's very true on so many levels. And it also shows how important listening skills are, how important communication skills are, and that they clearly were not communicating on the same way length. Oh, no, it's a nice episode. It's a little sad at the ending, but you kind of feel as if as a human being, as a person, hopefully, you learn something. At least I remember that I was quite impressed the first time I saw this episode with the notion that appearances can be deceiving. And even though you have the best interest at heart trying to defend the weak, maybe you are not fully acknowledging or seeing or are made aware of someone's strengths and capabilities. So don't judge a book by its cover. I mean, this episode is just chock full of cliches. Gotta love it. You know I do. Alright, so that was our introduction and goodbye to the Nox for the foreseeable future. We hope to see you back here again for our next review of the episode called Brief Candle. We are going to be seeing a Colonel Jack O'Neill, The Golden Years. It's a bit of a doozy, but it is a goodie. So, we do hope to see you there. <laughs>